When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Mexican-American singer, songwriter, and guitarist, Lydia Mendoza. Mendoza is known as the mother of Tejano music and was perhaps the first great Mexican-American recording star. She was also known as the Meadowlark of the border. And I decided to start this episode by playing a bit of her music, both to set the mood and because it is the kind of song that you would be likely to hear on the radio stations highlighted in the book, Mexican Waves, radio broadcasting along Mexico's northern border, 1930 to 1950. Written by today's guest, Sonia Robles, an assistant professor of history at the University of Delaware. Mexican Waves tracks the lives of entrepreneurs who open radio stations on the Mexican side of the Mexico-U.S. border. Robles examines what these entrepreneurs were trying to do and what audiences they were trying to reach, which was primarily Mexican people working as laborers on the U.S. side of the border. She also describes how Mexican federal regulations 
shaped the radio industry and what kinds of advertisements went out over the airwaves. And in the process, Mexican Waves ends up reconstructing the meaning of radio technologies for people living in that unique cultural space of the borderlands, as well as what radio meant for performing artists like Lydia Mendoza. Robles also examines why a variety of factors led to the decline of these radio stations along the Mexican side of the border after World War II. Sonia and I also talk a bit about how this book fits into a larger community of historians researching the history of small radio stations throughout North America, and particularly the work of the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is connected to the U.S. Library of Congress. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Robles. I think this is a fascinating topic connected in many ways to our recent episode with Andrew Simon on cassette tapes in Egypt. I had a lot of fun talking with Sonia, and I think you'll get out a lot out of listening to her. Hey, get excited. Sonia, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for the invitation. So Mexican Waves is a neat book. When you explain uh, to people what it's about, what do you say and what were you trying to do with it? Uh, yes, uh, I usually answer that I try to put the story of Mexico at the center of the creation of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and I think that that goes along with that second question, which is that that's that was my objective, um, one of the ob objectives um, mm -hmm. to try to make Mexico right, you know, and, and in this case, Mexican entrepreneurs, um, but also, you know, the Mexican legal system, um, you know, Mexican actors, Mexican singers, um, center them in the story of the creation of the border, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just, you know, seeing the border as many things, which it is, right? It, it, it's usually in a negative light. Um, I think I wanted to really put put Mexico at the center of the story. Um, so yes, that's definitely what I was trying to do here uh, in this book. Um, the second thing um, is highlighting this, this cause and effect relationship um, with both the migration patterns, um, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon as um, the 20, you know, the 20th century sort of, you know, begins, right, there's, you know, there, there's this increasing uh, rise in um, migration from Mexico to US, um, especially after the beginning of the revolution and, you know, 1910. Um, and as people were moving, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? But as people were moving, you know, that, the, you know, the technology was following, them, right, if yeah. you want to think in that term. And so, um, there was this cause and effect relationship um, and same thing with the laws, right? You know, when, when the Mexico's Ministry of um, Communications in Public Works, you yeah. know, when they establish the law, well, you know, people are going to apply for licenses, right? I mean, that's, that's why you would, that's what you would want <laughs> or you'd yeah. think so. Um, so, yeah, I was really trying to show how, you know, technology and in this case, you know, in the hands of, of Mexican people, right? You know, people mm -hmm. from Mexico um, where, we're trying to, you know, just forge these um, these other paths that really disregarded political borders. Um, usually, mm. I have to engage um, the those kind of classic book, right? The border radio book um, that was written by Will Will Fowler and you know, Gene Crawford, and 
It's a great book, um, but it's really kind of fantastical, right? I mean, it's sort of sensationalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's a character in there named Wolfman Jack, right? I mean, oh, he's yeah. A big, he's, a, you know, he's a big broadcaster, right? So, <laughs> um, so I, he's from is LA, my, is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's from, um, and, and it also goes way further in, you know, or, or closer, I guess, to, um, to the late 20th century. But yeah. I, this is the Mexican side of the border radio yes. story. Um, and so, that's what I was trying to do, sort essentially. So. That's cool, and um, you know, I think you engage with the you know the history of Mexico and borderlands and that literature pretty deeply. Um, and um, so when you say like you know, for some listeners, especially American listeners, I think they'll think of like the border as just like a legal, um, you know, a legal line in the sand that maybe we've securitized and stuff like that, you know, but like. I think you're using border in a kind of richer and bigger um, way. So I wonder, like, when you say, like, um, the, how Mexico and um, and these entrepreneurs, you know, these radio entrepreneurs contributed to the creation of the border, what do you mean by that? What's the bigger picture of border here? Um, yeah, no, that's great. I, uh, I wanted to show... And this is what I received in, you know, in terms of information, right, from my archival research, because um, essentially, you know, and I know you are too, right? You know, we're historians, and it's it's all about the what the sources say, right? And yep. so, after spending time in Mexico, you know, Mexico City, and looking at these sources, I, 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 I heard like this echo, right? And I kept on reading, you know, sort of, you know, these patterns of people who wanted to open a radio station after 1931 when it was when the paths were made available, essentially, mm-hmm. um, but in a, in a you know, national way in Mexico, um, they wanted to open stations specifically at the, at the political border of the U.S.-Mexico mm-hmm. area, but on the Mexican side, um, in order to reach the, the audiences of Spanish speakers on the U.S. side. Uh, yeah. And they and they write that in their petitions and in their requests for uh, for a license. You know, they say we want you know the millions of Mexicans in LA, right? You know, to hear us, right? For the stations in um, on the western side. So, when I say the creation of the border, I mean the creation of a place that that you know where people live, <laughs> yeah. right? That you know that that nowadays you know obviously has its own. I mean, culture and, you know, obviously, you know, deep and rich history, but also just, you know, way of, you know, the way that people communicate on the U.S.-Mexico border. I mean, there's a lot of of that identity that, I mean, I, I confess I don't have because I didn't grow up on the border, but exists, yeah. right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, these entrepreneurs were part of this this wave in the, in the yeah. 30s. Um, mm-hmm. So this is before, um, you know, the 60s, before the 80s, you know, before the kind of yeah. rise of this maquiladoras, like if you're yeah, you yeah, familiar yeah. with that term. Yeah, um, yeah. the maquiladoras, but we can. Yeah, like, you no, know, like factory systems and the way, way it develops later, right? I mean, which mm-hmm. is not a part of this story uh, yet where you cut off. No, no. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so how'd you come to write this book? I wanted a, a transnational topic uh, for my dissertation, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Um, I wanted to highlight uh, that I had the Spanish and, ling- and English language, uh, you know, research, but also just, you know, kind of, you know, writing and, and that mm-hmm. kind of cultural background. Um, and it just came from the sources, essentially. I think for the dissertation, I, I tried to pull both Mexico City and the border together, and it, it didn't mm-hmm. work. And so I, I kind of disregarded the Mexico City part. I'm doing that right now, actually. 
Um, huh. And then I went back to Mexico City and I just, you know, I, I, I just basically requested all of the files um, for the Mexico, you know, I mean, sorry, for the border um, yeah. region. And so, you know how that is. You Then you have to transcribe and you have to, you know, yeah. you have to read this information. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to to engage the borderlands historiography and, and what, what that is trying to do. But, um, you know, but again, you know, just put, put Mexico in the center. Um, I also, you know, wanted to kind of continue this conversation that media scholars and media historians have had yeah. on this cross-border circulation. I mean, there's um, Colin Gunkel and um, Laura Serna, who is that, hmm. um, who has written a book about, about film, right? Silent film, mm -hmm. and this, mm -hmm. this cross-border circulation cool. of, you know, cultural objects, right? And, you know, culture, like fan culture, essentially, as well. Oh, right? cool. um, and also people, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, how, how this was it transnational and how this kind of helped forge this identity. So, you know, this was happening even before the, the, these radio stations were there, right, with silent film. So oh, um, cool. I wanted to engage with that as well. Um, her book is um, Cinelandia, right? Um, making Cinelandia um, about, okay. you know, film, essentially, the silent film era. So I also nice. wanted to, to have a conversation with them as well. And did I, did I you know, when I, I, I can't remember if it was any of your, your acknowledgments or your intro, but did I gather that you were interested in kind of media history pr pretty early on in the project, that you wanted to use media as a lens into this history? Was that, is that kind of part of your back training or background is kind of that? Uh it, it's not, um, it, hmm. it wasn't at the time, but I was uh, teaching in a communications school when I was writing yeah. this book. And I, I know that that had a lot of influence cool. in, in the way I was writing. So um, the way that, that private institutions are in Mexico is like, you know, maybe really boring and I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll condense yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. But, but the way that me uh, Mexican institutions are, especially private schools, is they're, they're pretty self-contained. So the communication school there were several of us who were historians. And so I was teaching media history and a history cool. of media, but, but within a communications department where, you know, you have to learn how to, how to reduce the jargon, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. how to really kind of do these historic, you know, the things we highlight in our basic historical classes, like, you know, Amen. Um, you know, <laughs> close reading, right. Or context yeah. or, you know, all of these kind of basic skills of historians, you know, that mm -hmm. I was really able to, to kind of amplify it. Um, plus, I was in, in Spanish. I was in Mexico, and so mm -hmm. um, Mexi Spanish is my first language. I I I went to elementary school in Mexico City, and so I think I wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to engage with this media history. Um, I I'm you know I'm I'm hoping to continue that for the second book. I think it's yeah. a different, definitely different kind of um, skills and you know ways of of approaching this um, evidence. You know, as as sort of not just as a as like an example like hey i found a source this is an evidence but to yeah, really yeah, kind of yeah. break it down right and to analyze mm -hmm. it um because I, I i there there is a difference and i think for so many historians we just we find the source and we say this is the evidence but then there's also just the kind of deep analysis of mm -hmm. the actual source and i think obviously you know the happy middle is the combination of the two but it's hard to um to totally. forget that that when uh, when you're in the archive and you're just looking for this these sources you know that it's more than just evidence you also have to really break it down and so yeah it's kind of just it's pure luck but um the i think it's the episode that's going to come out before yours is in an in interview with this guy andrew simon who mm. wrote about cassette tapes in in egypt so 
uh, I didn't didn't plan it at all, but I mean, since we're gonna go, we're gonna hop from uh, cassette tapes in Egypt to uh, radio technology in uh, in Mexico at the border. So I'm excited. So one thing, I mean, this kind of came up when you were talking about other books that existed about your topic before you came into it. One of them was this term you used a couple times, like border blaster stations. And I was just wondering, because it's just, I, you know, like I'm not everyone's going to know about this. I certainly didn't know about it. What what were these things and what role did they kind of play at the border? Yeah, um, it's I know it's great term, border blasters. Um, they were high powered stations, um, m- million watts, you know, that just to kind of say, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and they were operated by U.S people on the run essentially right uh-huh. um so the the two the two biggest ones were um dr brinkley station um and when and doctor should be sort of in air quotes right because he was <laughs> holistic doctor uh who had this crazy you know these crazy ideas that you know to cure male impotence you would like you know what you would implant goat testicles essentially right yeah. you know and the, and he you know he was unable to do this surgery here in the u.s and so he went to mexico to carry out the surgery and um, and also like have the station and to, to have the station kind of broadcast, you know, um, this, you know, <laughs> come to Mexico, right, you know, cure, the, you know, cure your impotence, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had this whole, I mean, it was, yeah, so that was Brinkley, and he had several stations that these were border blasters. There was another person named, um, named um, Norman Baker, who also had a border blaster, um, you know, further down the line in the, in the Rio, um, the Rio Grande in, um, in Laredo. Um, and his big, um, his big, I don't know, I guess, uh, enterprise was on trying to cure cancer, right? You know, he was, mm-hmm. you know, he had these, you know, cancer cure, you know, um, and it wasn't wow. as, as, as involved um, as Dr. Um, Brinkley's, but, um, but he was also eventually, you know, just kind of shut down. So these border blaster stations, I mean, um, I don't know, I, I feel like I've heard people in Kansas or, you know, kind of Illinois, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of remember, right? I mean, there are still people out there like who are in their 70s wow. and who remember hearing these border blasters, um, you know, cause usually, you know, on the weekends or late yeah. at night, right? So, um, you know, both Bill and Jean, who I have met and who are, who are great, you know, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the authors of Border Radio, um, you know, they really, um, they, they, they just really wanted just to explain how this could even happen. Um, yeah. But the truth is that, you know, there's, I mean, there's supposed to be a documentary about, about yeah. Brinkley. Um, you know, there's several other kind of books and things like that. Yeah. But what I found is I, I was, I, I didn't want to get into that story because, yeah. um, you know, I, I think I try in, in one of the chapters to explain how complicated the legal system was and how, you know, that kind of just adds to the layers of bureaucracy of Mexico, but I didn't want to, um, you know, show how this happened, right? You know, how, how U.S. businessmen were able to, you know, get away with this kind of thing. I mean, that yeah. I think that border radio kind of does that already. And, and I yeah, was yeah, trying yeah. To, you know, kind of tell this Mexican side of the story. But yeah, border blasters are essentially just high powered stations. Um, you know, they were around for more than a, more than two decades, <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, like 30s to 50s. And then they were shut down. Um, the transmitters were taken back to Mexico City. They were sort of, you know, appropriate. They were, um, what is this called? Not appropriated. They were like seized, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the engineers were from U.S. I mean, clearly. I mean, mm-hmm. Brinkley was, was 
modern day, you know, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani. I don't know. Donald Trump. Uh, you know, uh, like these, <laughs> these people that are just like, they're so involved in so many yeah. things. Um, uh-huh. He had, he had, I mean, his how he, I, I, uh, there's a file, a border radio, a really useful border radio file. If anyone is interested in this project at the University of uh, Boston at the Briscoe Center at that archive. Mm. Um, and and um, when I was there, I don't know, like six or seven years ago, um, you know, the, you can listen to cassette tapes of of listeners, you know, um, basically just, you know, <laughs> saying like, oh, of course, this, you know, this this surgery was wonderful. You know, I'm cured or, you know, things like that, you know, that nice. he would play like these spots oh, essentially yeah. that he would play. But yeah, there's some, there's some good cassette tapes there. Um, so, so you, you were, I mean, that's a part of the scene that's going on, but you're focusing on the Mexican side. And the other thing that you, you know, you do differently is that it seems like a lot of the literature so far is focused on Mexico city, but you wanted to focus on these other parts of the, the border parts of the country. So, I mean, like, I mean, you've kind of already gone into the, the border literature, but is there any other thing that we get by focusing on not Mexico City and these other spots that we might miss if we just stuck to Mexico City? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, I think in the same way that it's maybe not in the same way. To people in Mexico, and Mexico is a very centralized country, right? In the way that mm-hmm. we, I think in the U.S., no, you would just never understand, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. right? It's just like, it doesn't make sense. But um, maybe British people do, right? You know, but um, but I don't know enough. But I think the thing about the, the about Northern Mexico is that it's never recognized and never seen as a unit, um, right? It's, it's, there's, you know, there's the kind of Northeast, right? There's the North there's like the center this like desert area and yep. then there's kind of like the you know this delta right where the where the rio grande just kind of you know <laughs> just mm-hmm. sort of becomes you know matamoros and all of these you know kind of like the the, the rgv right the um the rio grande valley um yep. and so it's not one place um even to people in the in the center of mexico so um, what I was trying to do, and, and this has actually been, you know, one of my challenges as I've been writing about this in Spanish is that, um, is that I'm trying to do essentially the same thing, but, but for, but for like very kind of centralized, you know, Mexico city audiences is to kind of Mm -hmm. show, Hey, you know, technology is able to, to do something right. That, that, you know, (laughs) that you may not want to see, (laughs) Uh right. Um, that's happening. Um, and so. I think that that's there. I mean, there yeah. there have been efforts to decentralize Mexico, you know, uh-huh. most recently, I would say, you know, they're sort of just echo, you know, that they're, they're uns- uns- unsuccessful. But I think um, for the most part, you know, the, the North is just kind of seen as this vast, you know, area, especially, mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, in the area and the desert, you know, below Arizona, New Mexico. Um, and so I think I was trying to, yeah, to also kind of have this, this conversation, but um, but it's hard, uh, definitely, right? Because I think um, we can we can follow the evidence and say that you know a station started here, and at the same time as it started here, you know, in in Ciudad Juarez and in Tijuana, right in Matamoros, and you know, to me that shows you know unity, <laughs> or yeah. you know that that shows a pattern. But I think it's it's hard to to follow that, right? And that's yeah, that's um, fascinating, fascinating thing about writing for this, um, you know. Mexican audience who has a totally, you know, this mental model, they just can't, um, that's so different than our frame of reference, right? So they're hearing your words differently, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's, that's the best way to put it. So, 
Yeah, um, and, cool. and maybe it is because, you know, these images of the border are, you know, to U.S. minds. And I think especially in the Northeast or, you know, the kind of further away yep. you get from, um, from the Southwest, it's it's just what you see on TV or what you've yeah. imagined, right? And um, and it's so much more than that. And I think um, that that's, that's obviously, you know, was also part of my of my intention. I mean, these entrepreneurs, you know, they didn't imagine the border not to be there, but they, but they were just, you know, they, they were working with a technology that, that surpassed the border. Right. And right. So it, it didn't matter. <laughs> that well, that the border me, was there. We didn't work this out in advance, but that sets me up for like perfectly for the next question. So you start the, you start the, the chapter ones about these entrepreneurs, mostly men, handful of women who are, you know, building these radio stations on the Mexican side along the border. So you know, how did they think about the border or Frontera and, you know, and who was, you know, who was their audience they're thinking of? What are they trying, what are they trying to do? Um, they're trying to get their compatriots, um, their Mexican compatriots to, you know, to listen. Um, also to help them, you know, pay the bills, um, you know, and the smaller stations. I mean, there's one small station in Naco, right? You know, and, and they, um, you know, if, if, I, if you look at the, the ledger, right, the kind of, mm -hmm. you know, um, the, the legal, you know, that report, um, you see that, you know, that they were being, you know, sort of subsidized, not by Mexican, you know, businesses, but by businesses in, in Calexico, California, right, yeah. or, you know, in, the, in that valley, in the Imperial Valley, um, because out in the fields, you know, they, you know, laborers were listening. They wanted to hear music, right? They wanted yeah. to hear their music. Um, and they didn't have that on a consistent basis until after the Second World War. Um, mm -hmm. So they're trying to get, you know, they're trying to get that audience. There's also a local audience that they're trying to get mm -hmm. uh, access to and to, you know, to truly, really try to appeal. But um, but I, I saw that more sporadic and more mm -hmm. um, related to, you know, probably not a big surprise, related to, um, the calendar. So, you know, during uh -huh. Christmas time, you know, there would be, or during the middle of the summer, you know, if there was mm -hmm. a rodeo, <laughs> if there was, you know, any type of, you know, sort of holidays or, you know, kind of, it, it coincided with those kind of events that the local audience participated, you know, by, by sponsoring a show or, you know, things like that. But, um, but I saw similar kind of activity in Texas where, um, you know, there's a like communities, you know, farm worker communities, are paying, um, you know, are paying these Mexican stations to, you know, to basically broadcast music on Friday night, right? Because they want mm -hmm. to have a dance. Um, cool. And so, you know, they want to have this kind of, you know, three hours of music, you know, they want to be able to, to go in this music hall, you know, to turn the radio on and to hear their music. And so they're going, uh -huh. they're having to cross the border into Mexico to pay them. Um, for That's this so cool. service <laughs> yeah um, so i think it's not that records didn't exist but i think maybe that just kind of goes back to another feature of radio that the live radio experience right there yeah um they could have played records but it's not the same as having it's this not the live, same nope <laughs> uh this live experience so um so yeah um that that's and, the main audience and uh, um am i right that kind of you know that when we think about a lot of technologies, but especially media technologies, a lot of time like amateur enthusiasts play a role early on. Is that something you saw here too? Not so much. Uh, I mm -hmm. have the files. I have the the archival files for the amateurs, um, but mm -hmm. they they don't tell. They they weren't able to tell me much. Um, I think mm -hmm. um, you know I I'm I'm still interested in the story of the the Mexico City amateurs, but. No, I mean, um, the, where the amateurs have come up for me in my research has actually been here in the U.S. and like a little bit in Canada who 
hmm. um, who were responding, who were writing back to uh, to not border stations, but stations in Mexico City. Um, that that's okay. where I've seen the role huh. of of you know these these DXers. Um, um, Kristen Herring wrote a, a, a famous book on 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 the kind of ham radio operators, yeah. right? And so mm -hmm. um, that part of part of that culture, right? Um, I think her book. I think the title is you know ham radios technical culture. Um, and the part of their identity was also international or part of their, you know, their activity was, was international to try to, you mm -hmm. know, catch in or reel in, right. A lot of these stations, um, that were abroad. And so in Mexico, Mexico city is, you know, explicitly plays a role there. So mm -hmm. th that, that's where the amateur, that's where I've encountered amateur <laughs> radio, cool. um, radio, um, you know, mostly men, of course, but same thing, you know, a handful of women who, um, who were, you know up all night, you know, tuning, <laughs> tuning in their, <laughs> their receiver, you know, the, the sort of equivalent, I guess, of channel surfing or something, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the comparison that people give. So. You, you begin the book with this wonderful anecdote um, about this uh, uh, entrepreneur who starts up a radio station uh, and plays this first song and um, announces the station. And, um, and there's a number of fibs in the the story he's telling. So he says it's in you know it's in Los Angeles, but he actually is broadcasting from Mexicali. He um, you know says the band is in the studio, but he's playing a record, and kind of just kind of goes from there. So I was wondering, like you know, sometimes uh, radio operators are choosing to kind of take illegal or informal um, you know paths, and I was just wondering like why they would do that versus going the formal channels that are available. Yeah. So why don't we just, yeah, that's the question. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. Uh, I think the border blasters um, established a, a, a culture of finding ways to go around the legal system. Um, mm -hmm. So I am, um, you know, I, I can't speak for everybody, of course. And, you know, I'm only kind of summarizing right from the, the files and the information I received, but I would say that, you know, for the most part, what the border blasters were doing and what they were getting away with, you know, quite successfully was, yeah, was essentially to go, you know, to to have the actual license. Um, yeah. And but at the same time to to have a transmitter that, you know, that that was not authorized, right, that was not legal. And so that was much more powerful, right? Yes. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a, a million watts, you know, just uh -huh. not. Um, and so, and there's of course like the international um, dimension of this too, because there's you know these series of international conferences and agreements, and um, you know Mexico sends representatives, the U.S. sends representatives, right? And you know they get to kind of you know uh, hash it out, you know, but nothing is ever resolved, yeah. and um, you know way until you know later 20th century um, in terms of the channels. Um, so and and in the spectrum, you know, the mm -hmm. U.S. the U.S. gets like the the choice <laughs> like you know mm -hmm. the, the best part <laughs> in canada and mexico kind of get like the edges here um it's like in, it's like nafta you know it was a <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's like who's gonna benefit the most here um so definitely the u.s and so i think um in in this case uh, i mean i can't answer you know for the ones that, that wanted to follow the law right and to kind of establish right. you know sound businesses i think other than, you know, this idea that when you're an entrepreneur, I think you, you want to, you know, things to work out well, right? So that there is kind of a, <laughs> um, you know, maybe just the sort of naive belief, right? That if you follow <clears throat> the rules, you know, mm -hmm. that you will be, you, you know, you can be successful. But um, I will also say, you know, that they're isolated in the, in the, in the northern part of Mexico. Yeah. So, um, you know, these interventores, right? These people that were assigned to them, you know, you know, from the government that are assigned to them. 
um, you know, they have to pay them, you know, the, the, the money is coming from, you know, from their pocket, right? The, the, mm. the radio station owners, but they're assigned by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're assigned, you know, to to listen and to, you know, to find them for violating, you know, the law. And so, so, so I would say, you know, that relationship is really interesting. Um, but it's not so much that, you know, that there's, there's a general, um, you know, sort of pact that they make, you know, to follow mm-hmm. the law <laughs> or to not follow the law. Um, I would also say, you know, that many of them were these entrepreneurs. I think they had this kind of um, amateur, sorry, more of an amateur spirit that just wanted to see if it could happen. You know, that yeah. um, the, the anecdote that I opened with, the, I opened the book with, you know, he, you know, he said he didn't confess he didn't want to say where he was because he didn't think people would believe him you know I mean, yeah. <laughs> sort of like, you know i didn't think my friends would believe me you know yeah. so i just lied you know that kind of like that's so funny that kind of a of a feeling of just i'm I'm just experimenting right um, yeah but um but, but also yeah, there's it's almost impossible because of where yeah. you're seeming Right. Yeah. But the year later, he does get the license and then he's mm-hmm. able to have a, a legit business. And so I mm-hmm. think um, I think that there's that. But no, I mean, I think that that's that's a great question. You know, what, what why follow the law? You know, when you see other people who are not following the law and, yeah. and they're quite successful um, and, and they're foreign. Right. In this case, you know, for Brinkley and and Norman Baker, um, you know, I, I think um, that's a very involved question. But I think it's yeah, um, it, it, it's. It's a good one. So you mentioned these env- inventories, these um, kind of people paid to listen. Um, and you talk about the rise of this uh, Mexican government agency, which has the abbreviation SCOP. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, can uh-huh. you tell us? Yeah. Can you say the agency's name in Spanish? Just so yeah. we know this, right? Yeah. So it's the Secretaría de Comunicaciones y Obras Públicas. So okay. the Ministry of, of Communications and, and Public Works. Uh, okay. So, you know. And so, what were these? What were these folks listening in? Um, you know, what were they? What were they supposed to be doing? And like, what could get a radio operator in trouble or fined? Uh, yeah, I I had the most. Um, I don't want to use this word fun, but it was the most, it was most it, a fun challenge, right? An, an exciting uh-huh. challenge um, to write about them because. Essentially, the the files that I looked at in, at at the Mexico Mexico's National Archive, it, it's their files, right? The files uh-huh. that that they have submitted or that they were mm-hmm. you know forced to submit. Um, and so, and there is a cutoff right at forty six, forty seven, and and then um, I've tried to follow them and I've tried to locate some of them, and um, they just kind of you know just kind of disappear. But um, these were mostly um, telegraph operators that worked at the mm. at the telegraph offices. Um, so they had, you know, many of them had two jobs or um, or three jobs, um, but you know they needed these telegraph skills first um, in order to kind of to to pass the radio license, um, you know, um, mm-hmm. to kind of like as a second step. Um, and they were assigned by the government, um, but they were paid by the station, um, and mm-hmm. so and their fee depended on how powerful the transmitter was. So okay. if the transmitter was two hundred watts, you know, somebody might get a hundred pesos, right? But if the transmitter you know, it was a lot smaller, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so, so there was, so they moved around a little bit. Um, and mm-hmm. then I did find, you know, that in their petitions for, you know, for appointments, you know, they, they, you know, they pulled the kind of, you know, patriarchal stuff and the, and, and also the, the, you know, the, the kind of classic, you know, for the service of the, of, you know, the, the government and, you know, I'm here to protect Mexico or, you know, these kinds uh-huh. of things, or, you know, I, I'm taking care of my, my brother's 
children because he passed away, you know, and or, yep. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they definitely um, use this kind of language to try to get these these assignments. But um, essentially, they, they were just there listening to try to find um, these stations if they violated the, the kind of really basic laws, which which, you know, said nothing on religion and then nothing on, on politics. Right. So uh -huh. stations were. Um, and well, I should add another third, a third one, which is that the foreign language had to be um, reduced. Um, and if you uh -huh. had something in English, you had to translate it into Spanish right away. Mm -hmm. um, that was the law. So they were just making sure that, that this was happening, um, that stations were complying. Um, yeah. And when they didn't, they find them. Um, but even when they find them, <laughs> many times they, the, the stations didn't end up paying or or the mm -hmm. stations shut down. Um, you know, there were a couple that yeah. just shut down. Um, but for the most part, these are, um, yeah, they, they're interventores. And I mean, they were there to intervene, right? This kind of, yeah. you just translate it, um, you know, from Spanish to English. But they are interesting, you know, state agents, um, for sure. Um, they're, to me, you know, more, the most fascinating, I guess, of, of what I Yeah, thought. yeah. Um, I thought it was super cool. Um, you know, and fresh. It felt fresh to me because, you know, we we don't have the equivalent here in the States, but I don't think, you know, I think they're, I can't think of equivalents in peacetime Europe, though I might be wrong about that. But yeah, I thought it was neat. It was cool. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, can you say a bit more about the religion regulation? Because like... I don't know. What if I want to do some pro-Catholic radio shows or something like that? So why why no religion? Yeah, great question, right? For Catholic Mexico. <laughs> um, yeah. So after, um, so the revolution starts in 1910, right? It, it kind of ends in the 20s, and that's still a debate. You know, when did it end? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then in the but the presidents who take over in Mexico in the 20s um, mm -hmm. are are very anti religion um so there's um yes um especially you know between 24 and 28 um and there's actually a, re a religious war inside of of the kind of cent center part of mexico it's called the, the cristero revolt um where um the state was was trying to limit um you know the authority of of the church the catholic church um they expelled a lot of um foreign a lot of european priests um, wow. who went back to Italy, <laughs> to Spain. Um, and, you know, they closed some churches down. Um, and, and, and then the, the, you know, Cristeros, like the, you know, the religious radicals fought back, mm -hmm. right? So they, um, yeah, okay. it, was, it was violent. Um, and for- Yeah, many... well, no religion is starting to make a lot of sense in that context, <laughs> yeah? Yeah. yeah. So, so this was, this was mid-20s, so like 26 to 28 was the high yeah. point. Um, and so, I mean, there's some, there's certain parts of Mexico, like in this region, Michoacan, you know, and, and a lot of the migration north to us, you know, were, were people escaping this religious war. Like, absolutely. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, if you're ever sort of interested in, you know, Catholic LA, I mean, in, and you look back at the, at, at this sort of migration time, it's a lot of it is, you know, this, this, yeah, the people sort of, you know, leaving Mexico, um, because they're persecuted, right. You know, from their, the government. And so, um, 
a lot of the, you know, sort of historians who, you know, maybe tried to do research in certain parts of, of this kind of Michoacán, Jalisco, yeah. you know, area, um, they have a hard time because a lot of their archival evidence has been burnt, you know, just doesn't oh, man. sort of, you know, exist anymore. But, um, but in the 30s, then when they create, and I think that that's why this legislation is so important, because then when they create this legislation that allows you know anybody right you know to to open a radio station you know they're yeah they are very explicit you can't have religion um and then you can't and then the politics um part is i mean there was a way to go around that which was that that the government was authorized to you know to transmit propaganda yeah. um and you know that at 10 minutes of every hour you know they could you know th that this meant that 10 minutes of every hour you know they they had bulletins on health, you know, on uh -huh. the census, <laughs> on, uh -huh. you know, participating in, you know, you know, these kinds of campaigns or, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, um, were there so, any other propaganda messages that were prominent during the period? Um, yeah, tons. And especially as, you know, as the Second World War, you know, becomes, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, um, you know, eminent. But I think the most of, you know, most of them had to do with health. Um, and most of them had to do, you know, there's this idea that, um, you know, that there's after the revolution, you know, the, the population loss was significant for Mexico at the time. And so there was this idea that, you know, we needed to, you know, we collectively, right, the Mexican government is thinking that, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, children are born and the children sort of, uh -huh. yeah, you know, yeah, can yeah. make it, <laughs> you know, yep. to elementary school and, you know, they can sort of be citizens. And so there's a lot there on health. Um, that's actually part of, of my research project right now it has to do with the public education's radio station. Uh -huh. So cool, cool, there's, cool. A, there's a yeah. lot of bulletins on, you know, teaching mother, teaching mothers how to care for their children, right? You know, if a, ch mm -hmm. if a child has a fever, you know, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of really, you know, this is how you wash your hands, right? You know, yep. this is how you... You know, this is, you know, if you live in a dark room, you know, that doesn't have ventilation, you know, you should open the door, <laughs> you know, just yeah. kind of really basic things, but, or, you know, or they seem basic, but they were important. And so the propaganda, a lot of it is health related uh, or public health related. Um, and, but then a lot of it is just, you know, the kind of classic, you know, party propaganda of, you know, joining, sure. you know, being part of the, <laughs> of the, you know, of the state, right. And, you know, feeling, yeah. feeling proud to be Mexican, right. I mean, that's, that's definitely yep. the underlying message. So. <laughs> right on. Um, so you write in that in the mid thirties, the government required at least a quarter of programming to be Mexican national music. And I was just like, how are they thinking about Mexican national music and what effect did that regulation have, you think? Yeah, um, and then I mean, in the north, I I don't. I mean, I wish I knew more because I think the evidence that I have, the evidence that I have is more has to do more with commercials um, than with actual uh -huh. music um, and and the kinds of you know commercials that um, that were that were broadcast. But in terms of music, um, you know, this just becomes um, mostly because the main station in Mexico City, XCW. Um, who was part of this media conglomerate um, and who eventually became, you know, one of the, the big TV, um, you know, TV moguls um, uh -huh. of today. Um, they um, have, uh, you know, a, a close relationship with NBC and with CBS. Um, so there's a lot of transnational, you know, international, you know, kind of, um, you know, circulation, right, you know, um, of, yeah. of these big you know, Mexican stars. Um, and then later, as the Second World War begins, you know, it becomes a lot about Pan-Americanism and, you know, mm -hmm. this sort of 
uh, where I should say maybe that's like, you know, earlier, like in the late 20s, early 30s. But, you know, there's a lot there on, you know, the goodwill, you know, I mean, the good sorry, good neighbor policy and, you know, things like that. So it's a lot of it is to protect um, Mexican technologies and Mexican, uh-huh. um, you know, Mexican sort of attempts um, to try to, you know, build its own music industry. Um, but yeah. if you look behind these attempts, you see the U.S. as well. I mean, you see New York, <laughs> uh, uh-huh. p- powerful New York, you know, interest, um, especially um, and NBC um, and CBS. I mean, it's because they it's, realize there's a big market there and they want they want absolutely. it. They want it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so so yeah. so they try to protect, you know, the Mexican um, mm-hmm. audiences from, you know, hearing all of this, you know, terrible English language music or jazz. Right. I mean, you know, w- w- within this yeah. era. Yeah. You know, because we know jazz, you know, can only be, yeah. you know, negative. Right. And, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's it has so. Yeah, that that story is an interesting story to to try to tell you. You can probably follow the you know records, right? I I would say that that's probably you know. I mean, you mentioned you know cassette tapes and and you know and Andrew Simon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think if you if you follow you know this kind of record production and the and the and the ways in which records, um, you know, this sort of in the U.S. it began as mm-hmm. ethnic music, <laughs> yeah, 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 right? You know, but then as as that kind of took off, you know, I think you can definitely see um, how Mexico both, I think, you know played a role in that but then also kept yeah. a lot for themselves and tried to build their their own industry i mean um they didn't succeed right eventually you yeah know, the u.s's markets you know the u.s added like sony added you know a mexico office right or you know yeah things like that peerless you know all these companies but um it's a good story for sure yeah that's a fascinating mm-hmm. story i'm also you know i used to be and this is going to shock the listeners i used to be like a thrift store person right so and my wife and I would go into thrift stores and we would look through the vinyl. And there's also an amazing story to be told in the U.S. context, and I think it probably applies elsewhere, about how until, say, the early 60s, there was like all these ethnic genres of, you would have German music and Irish music and Mexican music. You see all these records and then it just dies all of a yeah. sudden. It just crashes and it all becomes, I don't know, just pop pop culture or whatever. Um, so... Yeah, there's there's fascinating stories to be told there. I think. Yeah. Um. So you write uh, this is one. I really just like the way you put this. So you you write that ultimately the formation of these stations came to act as like cross border centers of cultural exchange between the two nations. So, what? How do you think about that? What did you mean by that? Uh. Yeah. I. The anecdote of, I think you know that I used to describe this is is a, you know a group of brothers you know crossing the you know who were living in Texas you know crossing the border into Mexico you know going to a station um, to record a song you know to and to play mm-hmm. it live um, you know but then going yeah. back to then going back to US you know to to you know either to tour or to like you know get back to work or you know whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's it's needing the stations for the, the kind of the diffusion, like the kind of the broadcast yeah. part of it um, and on the Mexican side. Right. But then at the same time, you know, it's the Mexican stations needing the audience, you mm-hmm. know, to, you know, to basically, yeah, like, you know, as I've said before, to sort of subsidize, you know, and to, to help them keep the lights on, you know, because yeah. they have to because they have to pay, <laughs> to pay mm-hmm. the, the workers and they have to pay these licenses and these fees or if they if they come up or things like that. So. Um, this is what I mean by cultural exchange that, that, you know, that they rely on each other. Um, and yeah. it, it is, it is short lived. Um, and especially as, you know, s- 
this kind of, you know, spot programming or, you know, these kind of, um, you know, these these one or two hours of, of Spanish language, you know, programming over U.S. stations as, as those increase a little bit, right? That, you know, there is more of this competition for sure. Yeah. Um, but but nothing, you know, really kind of the, the dramatic shift happens after the war, for sure. Um, you know, that's mm -hmm. when. Um, we see the rise of, you know, KCOR, right, in, in, um, in San Antonio, this, you know, first Spanish language, you know, station that was 100%, you know, 24 yeah. hours. Um, and then you see more, um, you see more, mm -hmm. you know, Chicano or Mexican American yes. entrepreneurs, you know, just opening their stations. Um, and then the, these, the, the border stations that I write about, you know, they, some closed down, you know, some are still around today, but, you know, that, that need to appeal to that U.S., you know, Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Mexican audience in the U.S. that that definitely um, decreases after after the war. So it is a it is a particular moment in time, um, yeah. but at the same time, I don't know. I'll still hear anecdotes. I mean, I presented at a conference in El Paso, I don't know, three or four years ago, and mm -hmm. you know, somebody said, "Oh yeah, you know, my, uh, you know, I I know somebody, and you know, for their political campaign, you know, they they paid a Mexican station in Ciudad Juarez, you know, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> to help them." <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah that makes sense yeah so you know just to broadcast because they knew that you know that they wanted you know the the voters in el paso but the local station restricted you know the amount of airtime they could have so yeah they just i mean and this was i don't know 20 years ago right or, you well know, you're probably catching different listeners too right i mean mm -hmm. like most people tune into a station and hang out there for long periods i think generally <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um so these stations, I mean, I, you know, I am no expert in Mexican music or even you know, the music of Mexican-Americans, but, you know, there's kind of famously border genres of in border songs. And um, were these already emerging during this period? I mean, where are these border radio stations? Do they play border music in the sense of, you know, music about the border? Is that developing yet? Not yet. Uh, yeah. It, in the way that it would after the war um yeah but but, but livia mendoza the, the most famous um character here she, she definitely mm -hmm. um is is an actor here so she's she's born in the u.s um born in in um, san antonio um pretty sure <laughs> or outside of san antonio you know but basically you yeah. know that that i mean san antonio is, is such a key key player key city hmm. um in the story but um you know, the end of the railroad line. I mean, it, th th there's so many reasons why San Antonio is, has always been just really important. But um, she, you know, travels on, along the border on the on mm -hmm. the U.S. side as much as she can. I mean, um, it's hard to do so, uh, you know, if you, yes. if, I mean, just even today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it, it, and so, you know, she, as, much, as much as she can. But no, um, the stations mostly actually just become kind of um, – springboards or sort of, you know, stopping points for artists going, you know, to Los Angeles or, or trying to mm -hmm. go to San Antonio and then over to mm -hmm. New York. Um, th that's more of what's happening. So the stations are just kind of playing what they have. Um, mostly uh -huh. records, um, you know, it was hard to have, it was hard, it, it, it was expensive, I should say, not hard, right? It was expensive to pay an orchestra you know to play yeah. live on, on you know every day uh, even for an yeah, hour yeah. <laughs> so records um and the circulation of records become become you know the the kind of music that is played and it's not border music it's uh, it's mexican urban music so there's yeah. a lot of 
Agustin Lara. There's a lot of sort of melancholic, um, you oh, know, yeah, urban melodrama. Type yeah, stuff, melodrama yeah. music. <laughs> um, there's also a lot of um, Afro, you know, Afro Mexican yeah, music, yeah, like in yeah. with um, Doña La Negra. I mean, she's a, she's she's one of the one of the Mexican singers that I I was able to trace. You know, who went to mm -hmm. these stations and you know before coming to U.S. to make a record in San Antonio. Um, so yeah, it, it's mostly coming from Mexico City. Um, okay, it, you know the but but as that is happening, of course, right? This kind of border music um, genre is is. I mean, they're happening emerging. At the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, you know, just to say a bit more about how do the how do artists and you know musicians and performing artists come to see the, you? You write that the radio stations kind of become cultural platforms. So I'm just wondering if, you know, if we look at it from the artist's perspective, like how they look at these things. Yeah. Uh, well, it would have to do with what something I just mentioned right now, which was the train. Right. Um, so yes. it would have to do with, you know, where the train is stopping <laughs> uh -huh. um, and or, or is not stopping. Right. So um, the um, in the book, I have an example from. um Dear, his name is escaping me, of course. Um, from a famous Mexican <laughs> uh, singer who had to, who wanted to get to LA, right? But essentially, mm -hmm. um, you know, he he couldn't. You know, you can't take the train to LA in the in forties, even in the early forties. Yeah. So he has to, you know, take you know, like a bus, you know, like you know, go through the car. Um, but you go to the stations because you're trying to to sell your music, and so you want okay. to, you know, play a song live right on the air. Cool. Go, let's see who can listen to me. You know, kind yeah, of thing. yeah, so, yeah. So they are these platforms um, in that way, but a lot of it just has to do with with the ways in which musicians are traveling. Yes. Um, so another way that I got at, that I was able to access this kind of circuit, right? This the yeah. circuit, um, because it begins in the theater, and it be, I mean it begins with the theater, I should say, mm -hmm. in the nineteenth century. Um, so you know, theater troops were, okay. were leaving. Yeah. Yeah, they were leaving. You know, they were traveling. Um, and also musicians cool. like big mariachi bands, yeah. you know, where they were going to all these consulate offices in the U.S. So, you know, uh -huh. as far away as Chicago, but of course, San Antonio, <laughs> L.A., yeah. uh, you know, New York. Um, so so the theater um, and troops, you know, the kind of circus, you know, <laughs> of yeah. that part, uh, they're, they're the pioneers for sure. And then um, singers who are trying to record and who want to get the radio um crowd in you yeah. know, to, to buy their records they just follow the path and so it, a lot of it just has to do with with infrastructure with transportation yeah. networks and so sorry um so i got i was able to access some of this the circulation in this network um at the ministry of foreign relations um, okay because, because they you know sometimes they ended up here in the u.s and were at, at the archive of the ministry of foreign relations um i should clarify and they would sometimes be stuck here in the u.s and run out yeah. of money um, so they would they would send a, a telegram, right? Usually, you know, requesting yeah. for aid <laughs> on mm -hmm. their on their cultural missions. Um, you know, they're just trying to get money, but you know, these cultural missions to promote Mexico. Um, so I was able to access, you know, some of some of this kind of circulation and these circuits. That's um, cool. You know, and and that archive because I saw that, yeah. you know somebody actually like Agustin Lada, you know, he showed up there and he said, you know, these are the people I have with me. You know, this is what we need. Ah. You, know, this, you know, our money is going to run out in two days. Oh. <laughs> so, like, yeah. you know, pl please send money, you know. Uh, so, yeah, um, it's interesting. I, I think we're, we're going to have at least one, maybe two or three uh, episodes on uh, African-American travel, automobiles, but also other travel systems. And um, 
I, you know, I, when I started getting into the literature, I never, until that, you know, until that moment, I never really thought about musician travel. Cause like, you know, these performers are just traveling all the time, mm-hmm. but what it, what that allows you to do in a sense as a historian who's interested in all kinds of stuff is, is, is their movement ends up surfacing all these social and cultural stuff. That has mm-hmm. nothing to do with travel and often has nothing to do with music, mm-hmm. you know? So like, you know, power and, yeah. and all these kinds of things, you know? And so, yeah. yeah, it's just really fascinating. I never really thought about like musician, you know, travelers in general, I think you can follow, but the, something about the, just the musicians need to travel. Yeah. They become like a tool for examining the history of, you know, any, uh, lots of different things. So many I things. Think. Yeah. Oh, ab- yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and to go back to, you know, something I wanted to highlight at the beginning, and, and I mentioned this cause and effect relationship, right? Because it's, you yeah. know, the, the people are moving, right? The migrants are moving and then the technology is following them. And so are musicians, right? Because the music, yeah. musicians are following them because they have dollars in the US and they can buy their records. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there you go, right? But, um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 something else I think to mention is that the border wasn't militarized, right? At this time. Yeah, right. So, um, so you know, there are many of my colleagues, you know, use the the archive, at, you know, Ministry of Foreign Relations to in Mexico City, you know, to try to get a lot of, at, at migration, right? But I think, right. Um, you know, this time period, right, in the '30s and the '40s, I mean, I mean, there is a checkpoint, of course, but you know, it's not militarized in, in the yeah. way you know that we would. That maybe that we would perceive, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. late it's the 80s, 90s. I mean, this is so much later. I um, so yeah. I think, you know, you have to have permission. You have, you do have to have authorization, but um, but it's not militarized, and yeah. so um, so it's just sort of seen as you know just a, a, a crossing point, <laughs> a yeah. point of entry. Um, um, tell us a bit about commercials. So you, you had pretty good records on commercials. Where did you find out about commercials? And what do you you know like what did you what did looking at uh, sources of commercials kind of allow you to see about the bigger picture, do you think? Um, yeah, I think that this is where I was having a hard time, you know, putting the kind of stop right on the project because um, yeah. I really thought, and, you know, and as you know, as a historian, I mean, you at some point you're like, okay, fine. I know I'm not going to tell the whole, you know, the whole story. Yeah. You know, I'm trying my best, you know, and um, with this information that I have. But, um, but that's really where I saw this cultural exchange, you know, really at play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, and I do want to continue and, um, and I need to, uh, you know, maybe engage with more, um, you know, STS people or, you know, more people that are into, you know, building these really great Excel, you know, worksheets, yeah. uh, you, know, yeah, to yeah, try yeah. To, you know, to try to track <laughs> a lot of this information. Cause, cause what I have, right. Is that several stations, more than several, uh, right. You know, more than a dozen stations, they kept this long, you know, record, uh, you know, every three months they would submit their, um, you know, their audit forms essentially right you know and on these lists you know they would say you know these are the businesses that have been paying us you know to air their commercials um you know and of course you know for how long you know but then also you know if the commercial was in spanish if it was in english and then where where the business was located um and so you know these appear in the archive um, yeah and you know i suddenly you know i I was left with just like a lot of numbers (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. Um, but but the reason that they're in the archive um and is that the mexican government placed an additional tax on the stations if they were um if they were broadcasting commercials from u.s businesses Um, Uh, so yes. yes that makes sense yeah 
All right, so the regulation leads to the papers, which now you get to mine for all kinds of uh, juicy things. Yes, like. <laughs> although, it's not, <laughs> although it's not really juicy, I think it's just more. Well, the, the, this is the show, the 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 kind the patterns, and and I did put this in the last chapter, yeah. right? The, the patterns just show, uh, what, you know, what I was able to gather from from patterns, not from numbers, but from patterns. Yeah. Um, were were the communities were establishing themselves, right? So there, you mm-hmm. know, there are a lot of businesses that have to do with really basic stuff. Obviously, food, right? But things, you know, like salon, hair salons, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of auto mechanic shops, um, a mm-hmm. lot of mm. um, mueblerias, right? A lot of um, furniture stores, yeah. um, you know. And so you think, well, well, why would somebody want to advertise their furniture store? Well, people are, you know, they're settling down, right? They're, yeah, you know, they need furniture, right? You know, and so a lot, you know, besides the basic kind of, you know, food and you know this, yeah. Of, um, you know, tor- tortilla, you know, the, mm. the place that, you know, makes fresh tortillas. I mean, this is essential, right, for the Mexican diet, right? So, you know, you you have to have yeah. that. So I was able to then kind of just, you know, pr- prove in this way, right, if you want to use this word prove, but sort of show, um, yeah. you know, that these communities of Mexican-Americans, you know, especially in Texas, um, that, that that's where a, a lot of, of this, the records, you know, really kind of were glaring. Um uh-huh they're just they're settling down you know and they're actually yeah. just using these business businesses on the mexican side you know to to again you know to promote you know what what they're doing because locally they can't go to a station and say you know hey hey you know i i, I don't know you know i i have you know there's a bunch of dressers that i'm trying to sell <laughs> you know like they, they can't do that in the us so they have to go to mexico and they and and you know they pay stations to do that so um cool. so the commercial part is is really cool i mean i'm hoping I'm hoping to pick up on that as well. But like I said, I think I, I need to, you know, have, I, I need to go to some statistics course. I need to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to like some MOOC. You just need some... to find someone to help you with that. Yeah. You don't need to learn how to do it yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh... Uh, so you say two things led to the decline of these stations. And you already mentioned one of them, which was the rise of these Mexican owned stations on the U.S. side of the, the border. Um but the other one is the rise of um, this Mexican radio programs from Mexico City. So why don't we take each of those in turn going kind of backwards. What were these kind of me- the Mexican radio programs, which had a, a Spanish name, obviously? And how do they affect these smaller stations? Yeah, so um, it, it basically, yeah, um, Radio Programas de Mexico, right? This um, it, It's a network. Um, and so uh-huh. it's a network. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Mexico is very centralized. And so the control is there from the beginning. Um, yeah. But but then after the, you know, I don't know, 43, 44, it, it just kind of gets a, a little bit tighter, right? A little bit uh-huh. um, stronger from the center. And so local stations are you know, kind of stuck between that phrase, like the rock and the hard place, right? Because if they join the network, you know, they're able to have programming that is yeah more up to date, right? Mm-hmm. That is cooler, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the, you're part of the network. And so then yeah. you have to also, you know, pay the fees. And that, that eventually is what happens. And so the, mm-hmm. the networks in Mexico City, they, they sort of add the pressure um, after the war. Um, a lot of it is because the, the war, the Second World War was was disruptive of course right in so many yeah. ways but but very disruptive in the airwaves um because you know there were a lot of um rebroadcasts from the bbc for example right hmm. a lot of news i mean that's really when you see the rise in news um news huh. news radio isn't really a thing <laughs> huh. until after uh, yeah until the 40s i mean 
there's bulletins, right? And kind yeah. of, you know, basic information, but, but news radio, you know, doesn't exist until after that. So um, you really begin to see that. And so people, you know, the kind of idea, right? The selling point is, well, you know, you need us, right? You know, you need yeah. the information from the center, you know, where yeah, yeah, yeah. the center of everything. <laughs> um, so so that, that's the first part. Um, in addition to, yeah, just having, um, you know, having, the, the community that was Spanish speaking, that was Mexican American, you know, I, or that was Mexican, but they, they were, you know, they had dual citizenship or, you know, they were able to have you yeah. know, kind of papers or, you know, be legal here in the U S um, you know, it, I think this is also important, right. You know, a lot of them come back from the war, right. You know, a lot yeah. of, um, you know, and, you know, and it's, this is the kind of era of prosperity as well. Right. And so, you know, why yeah. not open a business? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so this is what we see. Um, in, in Southern California and in, in Texas, absolutely. So just more Spanish yeah. language media. Yeah, it was a very interesting story to me. I was wondering, you know, if so as these new stations are popping up in the U.S., um, what, do listeners see them as superior for some reason? Or is it that they're more in the communities they're broadcasting to so like they can you know it just feels more closer or you know i I don't know like what do you think because the the listeners have to shift too to make this matter so what do you think was the draw yeah uh i think it was it has to do with the local angle right that that Uh that a station you know in san antonio is going to give you like that is going to give you the local news um, yeah. first, in addition to, you know, in addition to, yeah, you know, they're going to advertise for this hair salon or, you know, this yep. mechanic shop, um, which, which Mexican stations were doing. But I think a lot of it has to do with information and entertainment, yeah. um, I would say, because uh-huh. um, local because, artists and stuff, lo- you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Local artists, mm-hmm. um, local events. Because what was happening, you know, with the the border stations that I that I write about um, is that it wasn't just, you know, U.S. news or information, um, mm. or, you know, bulletins. It was also Mexico. You know, I, I mean, they're really yeah. just platform, you know, the platforms, they're, they're very bilingual in this way. Right. They're, they're very yes. transnational um, and <laughs> bilingual. And so, you know, for a lot of people, that's not interesting. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I would say, I mean, th- this is my kind of educated guess, but I, I don't know. I think that that's a great question. Um, the, what wonder, was it about like, the programming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I wonder if you can connect those two stories where as some stations on the border on the Mexico side are starting to to join this large network you talk about. Um, and you have stations growing up you know starting on the other side of the border if like those stations that transitioned to like mexican national programming um you know i can see it appealing to people on the other side of the border because they can learn about what's happening at the center but i can also see it being like eh, i'd rather have a local station connected to like my needs and not the center's needs you know the mexican yeah. center need yeah Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm involved in this um, this really great project, the Radio Preservation Task Force, um, that's mm. affiliated with the Library of Congress, and um, you know, it began in I don't know 2014, 15, with How with cool. this, with this perspective on wanting to tell the local radio story, right? These kind of you uh, know the national story, you know, Michelle Helms, you know, yeah, uh, you know, th- th- these national stories, you know, have already been told of. Um, of radio, right? Um, yeah. You know, Susan Douglas. I'm like, oh, I'm forgetting. You know, Su- yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so we need to go back to this kind of local story. Um, and this is essentially that that w- this is when it's happening, right? In the 50s, absolutely. 
um, this is happening in the fifties. I mean, there's not that many of them and, and, yeah. but they exist. Um, there's, mm-hmm. you know, like, as I said, you know, the ones in LA and, and, and Texas Santa, are the ones yeah. I'm most yeah. familiar with. Um, but I would say that, yes. Um, I think another thing that's happening within Mexico at this time after the war is just this huge, this increasing you know um population boom i mean this is yeah. this is when mexico city just starts to just become this this gigantic monster so yeah. so there's just more people <laughs> you know the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. these these ideas of in the 20s you know that we have to increase our population because so many people died in the revolution and you know this sense of, mm-hmm. of loss um by the 50s it's it's, it's paying off and it's oh yeah but it but it's also just kind of like wow yeah 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 uh, boom so, yeah um and yeah. and so so there's you know the population of the border also grows as well right i mean that, yeah. that's what i was trying to say because not yeah, everybody wants yeah, yeah. to cross the border and i think that that has right. to just be said you know that there isn't there isn't always a desire to, to get to this country of course this country mm-hmm. you know has a lot of great things you know but not everybody wants to be here no 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 <laughs> And you, you know, as as you're saying, like the the border is a it's its own thing, right? And absolutely, there's you can just desire to be there for various yeah. reasons, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, what are you up to now, man? What's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah? It sounds like you have a lot of irons in the fire, huh? I do. Well, and yeah. that's probably what happened with with wanting, you know, with telling this kind of big this transnational story. But um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I I would say that the project project number one is is. Um, writing about the Mexico's Ministry of Public Education's radio uh-huh. station. I like so, it. Yeah, cool. Uh, so it was managed by a woman in the first ah. decade that it it was in operation. So between 1924 and 1931, um, uh-huh. a woman, a Mexican woman um, named Maria Luisa Ross. Um, and is her she father- educated? Is she yes. mean? Does like, she have a college? She's yeah. elite. Yeah, she's okay. And yeah, she, does yeah, she have yeah. a college degree in something? Like, does her degree make her a good fit for this, or has nothing to do with nothing it? Nothing to do with it yeah okay okay <laughs> yeah, yeah she's a teacher and okay. Uh, okay she works in the ministry of public education and they uh-huh. th- they import the station from new york actually so so the mexican government buys the transmitter right i mean i, they, I love the story uh-huh. right, of, of this, yeah, yeah. this idea or, you know this idea of this transmitter you know leaving new york and you know <laughs> yeah. start going around you know <laughs> arriving in veracruz right and you know just kind of you know somehow making it to mexico city you yeah. know they they install it on the third floor of this you know colonial building right and you know they inaugurate uh-huh. the station at, um, in, at the er- beginning of 1925 um, and she's behind all the programming so she's behind right. you know recruiting her colleagues in the ministry to you know to you know show mm-hmm. up and you know read these bulletins <laughs> and um, you say is this the stuff is this stuff health too for the most part or is it a lot of it is health but yeah. a lot of it is um advice like a, a lot of oh. you know just sort of you know uh, this is how you know you should call, i mean a, a very simple stuff too you know but also yeah. just and, and very elite and you know I mean, of course like highbrow right but in mexico you yeah know, i mean that the mexican equivalent of raising people up elite. yes yeah yeah <laughs> <Yes>. yeah <laughs> it's very highbrow um, but yeah. she's a woman and so she yeah. she comes to, she comes to the u.s a lot i'm actually going to dc next weekend or next weekend next week to to get into some NEA archives, the National Education Association, because cool. she comes to the U.S. and and give you know reports on the achievements of educational radio is is how it's couched, right? Is couched yeah. as educational radio. And so I found one of the speeches that she gave, um, and I think I'm, I'm hoping, of course, right, to find more yeah. on her 
because she's yeah, I mean, her father was Scottish and, and, and worked for the government in the 19th century. And yeah, I mean, she's, um, but to date, I haven't been able to find her personal archive because she, well, I think because of this, of course, is the reason, but she was unmarried and she didn't have children. Um, so uh. yeah, so it's like the way, <laughs> yeah. So this idea of a biography is never going to happen. Yeah, that's I, not going to happen. Um, well, it still sounds cool, man. I mean, I love that you can, there's so much stuff that you can draw out of that story, including how elites look at non-elites who they're trying to raise up through these efforts. And there's so <laughs> much there. It's really rich. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm doing that, yeah. and then also I, I'm following up on on this last chapter that I was mentioning on the commercials. Um, I, I there's more there that I, yeah um, that I need to you know that I need to just you know get out of, of you know yes I, I need to find more patterns <laughs> yeah um, and work with um, with somebody so I'm doing that but yeah I mean essentially um, you know the thing about radio is is there's you know there's a lot to write about and um, yeah. as i said you know this my work with the radio preservation task force on you know spanish the spanish language radio caucus is is you know we're we're like a group of eight <laughs> uh you I know love it. scholars well, that's like spanish a deep language. nerd group there, right there <laughs> if i've ever heard of it <laughs> yeah so there's so i mean what what one of the authors you know just to kind of give you an example of you know the kind yeah. of work people are producing you know All right, like feminist frequencies community building through radio in the yakima valley? valley yakima valley okay yeah. I couldn't... so how cool i love <laughs> it know, and that's one of your that's one of your uh Yes, collectivo mates, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, Monica de la Torre de la Torre is at ASU and Arizona State. So yeah. Nice. So I think um, that's definitely what what I'm up to. But that's cool, man. And where do you guys? Where does that little crew hang out? Like, do you? Well, there's a there's a conference in DC next year, um, uh -huh. which will be the the third one. I mean, the, the first one was 16. The second one was 18. Um, 2018, and then the third one was supposed to be 2020, but yeah, you know, yeah, we all know. We it. know how that goes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but so is it just the conference of that group, or is it attached to a larger conference? It's, it's the national. Yeah, it's the national. Uh, conference. I see. Yeah, so I see, that I, I mean the 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 two co-directors are um, Josh Shepard. He's at UC Boulder, okay. um, and um, uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Sean Bancour, who's at UCLA. Um, so okay, they're, they're, they're the co-directors. I mean, yeah. So, and what's the project called again? Or the radio conference? Preservation Task Force. All right. Cool. Um, so, cool. so it's yeah. LOC. It's Library of Congress affiliated. So we're able uh -huh. to use the space, which is really nice. But then also, it's because you know the Library of Congress is is essentially you know that they're gonna they're preserving these these documents. Yeah. Right. These. Well, I'm know, glad they are. That's awesome. So yeah. yeah, that's that's part of what I do. <laughs> so. Yeah. I love it. Sonia, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This is a blast. Thank you um, for the invitation and, and the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. 
Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. Thank you.